it depends. You know, some things uh, decline considerably after harvest. Some others don't do as much. And some others go up, actually. So just to give you an idea, there are fruit out there that, you know, when you cut them from the plant, they're not ready to be eaten yet. But because they have a natural ability to ripen after harvest, they will accumulate sugars and they will become sweeter without us giving them anything, but just allowing nature to do its work. A good example is bananas. Bananas are harvested green from the tropical areas of the world, and then they're shipped to us using containers and boats, and they come to ports of entry, could be Miami or Savannah or LA, and they're green. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Angelo Stelzidis, PhD. He's an assistant professor in post-harvest physiology at the Department of Horticulture at Tift, on, the, on the Tifton campus at University of Georgia. So we're going to talk about uh, what's called post-harvest fruit and vegetable physiology. Interesting. Angelo, thank you for coming. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, I mean, besides rotting, what happens to fruits and vegetables once they're harvested? Like, what are some of the physiological things that go on? Great question. So many people don't know that, but when you cut a you know, vegetable or a fruit from the mother plant, it still continues to live. It's an alive organism, and as all uh, live organisms, it'll eventually die. So what we're trying to do here and where we come as post-harvest physiologists is we're trying to slow down the process, the senescence process, and make it last as long as possible with a better quality, good, you know, flavor, aroma, good visual appearance. And we try to extend the shelf life to make sure it gets to the final consumer. Yeah, I'm very interested in what happens to the profile of all the, the chemicals that comprise fruits and vegetables, you know, the nutrients and things like that. Do they, do they go down quickly? Like how important is freshness if you're going to eat something? Mm-hmm. That's a very good question. It depends. You know, some things uh, decline considerably after harvest. Some others don't do as much. And some others go up, actually. So just to give you an idea, there are fruit out there that, you know, when you cut them from, from the plant, they're not ready to be eaten yet. But because they have a natural ability to ripen after harvest, they will accumulate sugars and they will become sweeter without us giving them anything, but just allowing nature to do its work. A good example is bananas. Bananas are harvested green from the tropical areas of the world, and then they're shipped to us uh, using containers and, and boats. And they come to ports of entry, could be Miami or Savannah or LA, and they're green. And then they are distributed throughout the country and they get to grocery stores, and then they can artificially aid them to ripen, 
they, they turn from green to yellow by applying um, an ethylene hormone, as we, as we call it. It's just like a gaseous hormone that will be synthesized on its own, but we're doing it faster by applying it to the load. So, you know, you get a green, to, a green uh, banana is, you know, produced in Ecuador. You live in Iowa. And, you know, it'll get to you at the exact same stage as someone in LA or someone in New York or someone in Europe will get it. This is because of what we can do. We stop the ripening process when we want it to be slow and we make it faster and uniform when we want it to be a ripe product um, at the point we want it to be ripe. Okay. Yeah, because I had heard you put uh, bananas in like a paper bag and the ethylene will get trapped enough to ripen them. And I don't, exactly. I don't know, are there other fruits that you could put next to bananas to help them ripen or the ethylene not affect them? So that's a good question. The There are many fruit that will produce ethylene and you can put them in the bag or nearby um, bananas. Apples are good ethylene producers and many tropical fruit like the cherry moyas. These are produce a lot of ethylene. Companion fruits that can help you ripen stuff? Yes, there is a lot. There's a lot of them and, you know, not all of them produce the same amount. As I said, these uh, tropical fruits produce more than others, but you can go online and uh, look up ethylene producing fruit and you will find a list. But usually, honestly, if you leave, let's say, a banana out on its own or you put it in a paper bag, High temperature and, you know, and nature will do its trick. It might be slower, but it'll still happen, you know, on its own. Applying ethylene, you know, from another source will make it faster, but it can happen on its own. And what's great about ethylene is that it can be active in very small amounts. You don't need a lot of it. So, you know, even the product on its own will produce enough ethylene eventually to ripen the fruit. Why do fruits produce it? What's the role? What's the purpose? It's just part of the ripening process and it's produced naturally as a step in the ripening process to allow the fruit turn from an immature fruit. It becomes mature, then it's able to produce ethylene and it can you know, accumulate sugars and all these great flavors and aromas that we want to, you know, in order for it to be consumed. Some of the examples of uh, ethylene producers, as I said, apples, bananas, melons, pears, peaches, they all produce quite a bit amount of ethylene. Tomatoes, which is a fruit, even if it, you know, in our mind, it's a vegetable, does produce a little bit of ethylene. And there are other products that, you know, do not produce any ethylene or produce very little. But if you put them close to ethylene, they're very sensitive to it. And you're going to see the effects of ethylene in usually something that is not desired. I'll give you an example. You get broccoli, let's say. You put it close to an ethylene producer and you get yellowing and you get this visual effect of an old broccoli. So ethylene and high temperature will cause your broccoli to turn from green to yellow and will cause the florets to be, you know, uh, all looking old and not, you know, uh, pleasant to be consumed anymore. All right. So do um, stores or certain distributors have uh, machines that will, you know, produce ethylene to ripen stuff? You know, like let's say uh, I'm a fruit and vegetable distributor and I get like 10 different kinds of each and I have to deliver it to local stores. Do I 
bother to ripen anything before I deliver it or no? Um, yes. So many crops, actually, let me rephrase that. We do use it in a number of crops. We use ethylene and bananas for sure. And we can use it also in avocados. Other crops, usually uh, we're trying to avoid them ripening too fast. So, you know, for apples, for example, we want them to store for a long time. Or for pears, we want them, you know, firm for a long time. You can apply ethylene exogenously and have the ripening process, you know, happen faster. But bananas and avocados are the two main ones that are ripened with ethylene for now. If we go to tomatoes, that is also, you know, a fruit vegetable, as we call it, we can apply ethylene there too, and it's happening routinely. Bananas are, if you know that they're harvested, usually at a mature green stage, they are, you know, mature, which means they can ripen on their own. But we add ethylene to ensure the ripening is uniform and to ensure that we get the same color, you know, tomatoes in the whole load. Because if you let the fruit ripen on its own, you're going to have a lot of variability in the load. But when you apply a lot of ethylene exogenously, you have a more uniform result. So yeah, back to your, as you, as you mentioned, we can apply ethylene to a number of crops and we do that to ensure we get the visual quality and the organoleptic characteristics that we want to make sure that, you know, our consumers are happy eating this. What about some of the, uh, the micronutrients and other parts of the nutritional profile? What happens to that for various vegetables and fruits on, on what timeline? Any generalities? Many things, as I mentioned, that will go down naturally. Many vitamins will um, eventually go down. Some others not. I don't have like a timeline. I cannot tell you, you know, like in five days, you get 20% less vitamin C or, you know, 40% vitamin XYZ. But in general, the trend is for most nutrients to go down as fruit ages or vegetables age. So you want to make sure you eat as fresh products as possible. But it's not only to eat fresh products. You want to eat products that have been stored in the appropriate conditions because, you know, storing a product at 75 degrees for a week is probably much worse than storing the same product at 32 degrees for three weeks. So, you know, it's not only how old the product is, but what were the conditions for storage for this product. So it's very important to mention that we, you know, when what we try to do as post-harvest physiologists, we're trying to teach people on the appropriate conditions of storage for each individual product. And this way, not only we ensure, you know, a long shelf life, but we ensure that all the nutritional characteristics of the product are, you know, remaining at a good level um, for as long as possible. That makes any sense. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, 
transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Okay, no problem. So what um, is some of your research about? So in my lab, uh, I joined the University of Georgia back in the fall of 2019. We're working on different ways of ensuring protein and vegetables from the state of Georgia and the region are stored for as long as possible. And we're trying to help our local industry reach out to new markets, possibly ship products that are a local commodity uh, to the region or to the country, or even export products to the nearby countries. We're working with commodity commissions around the state. We're working with the peach commission, with the vegetable commission, with the blueberry commission. And we're looking in issues that they face and disorders that are out there that have not been identified yet. And we're trying to provide them with solutions in, you know, these problems. I'll give you an example. Like, with, yeah, one well, example. So the peach industry in Georgia is using a method called the hydrocooling to cool down freshly harvested peaches. The peaches come from the field, they're warm, and you need to drop down the temperature as quickly as possible. So what they do is they have cold water, which is, you know, they're like drenching those bins of peaches with cold water, and they want to also disinfect the product, so they add chlorine to this, to, to this water. So we were looking, and still, we're still working on that, in alternative sanitation methods, we were looking in adding a gaseous or an aqueous ozone solution to this uh, water, for example, and we're looking in the, on the effects of the uh, this you know new hydrocooling system to the quality of the product. Does it harm the product quality? Does it improve the product quality compared to chlorine? Uh, and could it be a potential alternative? This is one, you know, like project that I've been working what does on. That mean, what does that mean, quality? What's the definition of it to you for growers? Quality is the degree of excellence that each individual throughout the value chain is expecting to have from the commodity that he or she is dealing with. So for the, uh, you know, farmer is the, the visual looks and how saleable the product is to the next step. For the consumer, on the other hand, is how it tastes, how it feels when you eat the product, how long it can last on the counter or in the fridge. You know, each person has a slightly different approach to quality. Shelf life is a very important part of it because everybody wants a product to last long. And then, of course, visual quality is the first thing you 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 uh, notice because when you go to the store, you buy it with your eye. But it's been shown from research that repeat customers demand good eating quality. So it doesn't matter if your product looks good, it has to taste good for the person to come back and buy the product again. And that's what you want. You want the repeat customer that will come back and say, oh yeah, I like this peach from Georgia. I like this, you know, lettuce from this place. I'm going to pay the extra dollar to get that compared to the other, uh, you know, uh, compet- competitor, uh, competitor's product. So, you know, quality overall is very, very important. And there's many different, you know, like quality could be visual, as I said, could be organoleptic, what you taste or what you feel, what you smell. 
could be nutritional quality as well. Uh, and that could be, um, you know, analyzed in the lab where you can see how much of each vitamin you get when you consume this product. Is it better than the others? Is it worse? Or what can we do to improve the nutritional benefits from a product? Could we probably store it at a different temperature to make sure the vitamins stay, you know, are there for a longer time? Could we plant a different variety that has more or less of, uh, you know, of a compound that we want or we don't want? There's a lot of things uh, that, you know, part of quality and we are looking at it. It all depends on the product and, you know, the end consumer and whatnot. Very good. What what are, um, I don't know, what are some of the really difficult fruits or vegetables to harvest and transport and store? Which ones have to go like really quickly and which ones can go a lot longer? Hmm. So generally, leafy greens, uh, you know, lettuce and the likes are the ones that are, have the shortest shelf life and they require very good temperature management. And then you go to the other end of the spectrum, you have dry nuts that can last for a long time. Somewhere in between, you have, you know, fruits like peaches and nectarines, and then you have tomatoes and you have onions that can last longer. So, you know, if you were to talk about, um, you know, to put them on a scale, usually the way we can estimate the shelf of the product is by looking at its respiration rate. Many people don't know, but, you know, as I said, all the fruits and vegetables are alive. So they respire like we do. They consume oxygen and produce CO2. The rule of thumb is that the more a product expires, the shorter the shelf life. Let's say more, the more the product leaf, what? The more the, the, the more the respires, the more it consumes oxygen, the more CO2 it produces, the shorter the shelf life it gets. How do you know if it's, it's doing like, that? How do you know if it's mm-hmm. doing that? We can see that in the lab. We have equipment that you know can measure the rate of respiration for every living organism, the way you do it, that you can seal a container with a product and then you seal it for a set amount of time, let's say one hour, and then you can measure the buildup of CO2 by taking a sample of the air in that container. And then you can tell, oh yeah, my peaches aspire more than, you know, these dry onions. And, you know, these are things that we do routinely in the lab. And we can tell if a product has undergone some sort of stress, because believe it or not, you know, these uh, alive organisms will get stressed. Let's say you mishandle your product. You put your product at a really high temperature, the very low temperature, or, you know, there's an attack of some pathogen. The product will aspire more. It's like when you and I are like working out, we will aspire more because our body is trying to cope, that's what, you know, the product is also trying to do. So, you know, you get high respiration and then you get product will consume more of its substrates and it will usually die faster than one product of the same type that will have a low respiration. So the number but which, one... Which, uh, which, which fruits are like the heavy breathers then? So rule of thumb, you know, the ones that don't last long, they breathe more than the ones that do last longer. An example, you know, a peach has a higher respiration than, you know, an orange. 
because peaches last only for a few days or bananas also respire more and then you know citrus can stay intact for quite some time but how could um, something mentioned- respire if, after they're harvested i guess you said they're still alive so are they still respiring or do they go into like yes. a decay mode they still respire and then the decay comes afterwards. You have a pathogen attack to the product and through a wound or an opening or through a scar that might be there. And then that attack usually causes the respiration to go up even higher. And then it causes, you know, the ultimate death of the product. So our job is to make sure that the product respire as low as possible and that they live for as long as possible. And the, as I mentioned earlier, the number one way of doing that is by cooling the product after harvest to the appropriate temperature and by keeping it at that low temperature for as long as possible. Because the product, if it warms up and cools down again, or if you handle it a lot, it doesn't like that. It'll get stressed out, it'll respire more, and then in the end, you have a shorter shelf life. Hmm, okay, makes sense. So, I mean, uh, there there doesn't seem to be any warnings or anything, I guess. I don't know, people that handle the fruit and, you know, whether it's the store or the person. I mean, I don't see if, I guess I've never seen any warnings of any of this. Are there any guidelines or is that not necessary or how come? Um, yeah, one of the issues that I see around both at people's homes and at, the, you know, retail places is that they don't use the appropriate temperature for each product. They either put the product at a very low temperature or at a very high temperature. And they do that for many different reasons. For example, very often the stores would want to showcase a product and they do that by taking it out of the refrigerated area and they put it at, you know, a 70 degree room. Let's say you have strawberries, you know, that strawberries should be kept down to 32 to 34 degrees Fahrenheit, no higher. But when we have a a lot of strawberries coming in and the store wants to push them as, out as quickly as possible. They often stack them out uh, in, uh, let's say, when you enter the grocery store, you see strawberries out there. You can smell them, which is great, but they're not supposed to be there. These berries have warmed. The senescence process has started and is, you know, already happening and then what you can do is you can just take them home and put them as quickly as possible to the refrigerator if you don't you're going to get only a few days of shelf life however if the store was to keep the berries at the you know the appropriate low temperature and then you were to do the same thing you will get a much longer shelf life a much better eating quality lower percentage of uh, decay and it would be a firm glossy berry versus you know a mushy dark dehydrated berry that you would get if you were to leave it at a 70 degree uh, location so this is one part of the problem people or you know stores just mishandling the product and putting it at a higher temperature the other issue i see is many times products are stored at a very low temperature so then you get a product that is not supposed to be stored at 34 or 40 degrees being put there because, you know, that's the only temperature that you have. You have either 70 or 40. So you go with a lower one thinking that it's going to extend the shelf life. But it can cause a disorder called chilling injury. 
And this happens in plants that are usually tropical or subtropical, like bananas, pineapples, like um, even tomatoes. Believe it or not, they're not they're they're not supposed to be stored in the refrigerator. Very often, in order for them to you know extend the shelf life, they do that. But then when you take the product out of the cold room and you leave it for a few days. Uh, in the uh, in ambient conditions, that's when you're going to get the visible um, effects of chilling. And you see that, uh, we've all seen bananas, how they look when they come out of the refrigerator. They turn brown and they're not, they don't have a good eating quality anymore. In other products, you might not see the, the effect of chilling, but you'll be able to taste it. For example, in tomatoes, you can probably store them at, you know, the refrigerator. They'll come out and they'll look okay. And you can cut and eat them, you know, at that moment. But the eating quality will be uh, significantly lower. Um, you have certain volatiles that are naturally occurring. And by putting the product, the tomatoes, in a cold room at a very low temperature, you permanently stop the or you slow down the processes that produce the volatile the volatiles that give you this good eating quality of tomato that we are lo- we're all looking for so mm. you okay. could do you could you could harm your product by either storing it at a very high temperature compromising its shelf life but also by storing it at a very low temperature where you compromise both the shelf life and the eating quality if that makes sense. But I mean, is there is there guidance for anyone that handles fruit based on what you know? Or is, is it just kind of, um, you know, people just know because they're in the industry? The industry has come a long way and has improved the, um, you know, like the quality of the product that we get. There are still issues and I get a lot of calls and emails about, you know, guidelines on where to store each particular product at what temperature at what relative humidity and whatnot there are a couple of very good websites Um, one of them uh, is the uc davis post-harvest technology center website they have an area in their website that is called the produce fact sheets and you can go in there and you can find the majority of the products that we find in the store and it will tell you the recommended storage temperature as well as relative humidity. So even for everyday people, if they buy something that they're not familiar with, they can go in there and look at what temperature they should be using to keep the product alive for as long as possible. The industry, as I said, has done a lot of research and you know many things we have figured them out the hard way. We had, for example, tomato quality was going down uh, for many decades. People were complaining and we found out that we were holding them at a very low temperature. So initially we were holding them at 40, 45 degrees. And now we found out that even at 55 degrees, the the quality of the the flavor of the tomato can be um, harmed. So we found out that, you know, you don't want to chill your tomatoes too low, even if you get a longer shelf life, because you lose on the eating quality side of the equation. So, you know, many things are still, you know, yet to be identified. What is the optimum temperature or, you know, what is the 
the temperature for each individual variety, but we've come a long way and the um, industry has improved a lot. That's why we get more fruit, like a larger selection of fruit year round. It's because, you know, we've done a lot of research throughout the decades and we can capitalize on these, you know, like low temperature storage facilities, bringing products from, you know, the Southern Hemisphere during our winter and vice versa. So, you know, we have come a long ways, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Okay, understood. So, Angelos, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Um, we, uh, as uh, if you don't know, I have a heavy extension appointment, which means uh, that I work with the industry of Georgia and the United States in general uh, in order to provide solutions to their problems. So... If there is an, an immediate and uh, urgent need for something, they can reach out to me. They can look me up on the UGA website. They can uh, reach out to me via phone or email. We also have uh, something called extension publications coming out. And these come depending on the season and the product we're working on. We are putting out information that are for the industry or for everyday people that want to learn how to store their product longer, we put them out in the UGA websites. Um, There are ways that you can Google the uh, commodity of interest and you can look for, you know, the UGA websites and what, what we have out there for, let's say, strawberry. And you can look for a production manual, a storage manual, shipping manual and you know you can it's a shorter science-based document that everybody can use it's not like too complicated we're trying to make it easily accessible and understandable for the average person out there but also we make sure that what we are suggesting is scientific and you know is not something that uh, came up us to our mind one day without you know doing any background research so you have to make sure what you trust. There are a lot of, you know, like videos out there that will show you ways to extend the shelf life of your banana and make it last for six months. Most of them are not science-based. So if you are looking for good quality information, go to your state university where, you know, science-based research is done and look for, you know, this And if you have a question and you work on a commodity, don't be afraid to reach out to your local uh, scientists. They're there uh, for that reason. Reach out, call them, email them, and you're going to get answers to your question and it's going to save you a lot of time and probably money if you are a professional. So other than that, um, yeah. Yeah, that's about all we have time for, Angelos. But thank you so much for coming. And I appreciate all your advice and wisdom about the, you know, the vegetables and fruits. Thank you. Uh-huh. Thank you so much. Let me know if you need anything else on my end. I'll be happy to, you know, send you if you have any questions or things that you need to put on the, right. the website or where. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? 
Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.